Welcome to this Patreon-exclusive episode of the Marvel Cinematic University podcast. But wait! You're listening to this on the main feed, so this is actually a little bit of a preview. About 20 minutes of this episode will be on the main feed as you're listening to it right now. And we are here to talk about Better Call Saul, the series finale. Anybody who knows me knows that I love this show. And to talk about this... There is nobody who I'd rather talk to about Better Call Saul than the producer at a metal arc and Count the Dings, Basketball Illuminati, Cinephobe, a whole a million other things. Anthony Mays, Corn Puzzle is in the house. Mays, how you doing, man? What's up, my fellow Anthony? Only two Anthonys are allowed to talk about this show. It's the two of us. And- yes. And it's, you know, you... It's it's funny to this funny like we've been talking about this show for years, man. Like it's just for yeah a few, for I a few mean, years now. Crossing we, podcast networks. We definitely talked about season five. Did we talk about season four? We did. Yeah, that's actually where we started. Four okay. and five. Yeah, four and yeah. five. Four. That's I mean, four feels like a hundred years ago. There's really it does nothing else to say. But that's that's one of the great things about this show when you get the final courtroom scene and Jimmy, Saul, Gene, whatever we're calling him now, <laughs> looks 14 years older than he did at the beginning. And then they say, oh, yeah, all of this happened in two years. All of Breaking Bad happened in two years in real time. It's nuts to think about. It's nuts to think about. I I was thinking about the this show generally after the finale ended and the general conversation around this show and people kind of tend to go into the talk about something that I'm really not interested in and the whole like, is Better Call Saul better than Breaking Bad? I don't care about that conversation. I think the better conversation is it is an amazing achievement that this show even arrived in the realm of Breaking Bad. And in some ways, from a comparison, from a, a companion standpoint, I should say, as a companion show, they're like near rivals in a way. And it just provides so much context to everything that we saw in Breaking Bad. Plus, with the story of Jimmy and Kim, which I thought they beautifully laid out at the end of the series, kind of closing that loop from the start of the series. Mm-hmm. It really ended up being this. Really ended up being a love story, all through all of the drugs and all of the other stuff with ancillary characters, Gus and Lalo, you name it, Mike, everybody else. But this ended up being a love story between Jimmy and Kim, and I think that was the cool part that they still found a way back to that, even while the timelines merged. If before we get into the finale itself, just give me like your perspective on this show generally because i think it, i, I want to hear it well one of the things i was thinking about the most this week in retrospection and preparation to talk about it was the just the length of time is crazy so like 2008 i am a freshman in college mm-hmm. And that's when Breaking Bad started, and I didn't pick up watching the show until a couple years after that, but 
So much has changed, but the one thing that hasn't changed is that they've been making television in Albuquerque all these years. And yeah. it was a risk at the time. Vince Gilligan worked on the X-Files, but was pretty not well-known. Definitely not as well-known as he is now. He set up shop in Albuquerque, which was weird as hell. The only other show that's ever been in New Mexico is Roswell, which everybody remembers. And he created a talent factory. And I think what's interesting is we're actually about to get another example of this when they do House of the Dragon, which is they built an industry in an unlikely place. Game of Thrones was shot primarily in Belfast, which is not exactly the hub of Hollywood television, but they built an industry. They built a crew. And now they're going back. And one of the things that I think is so cool and I'm excited for House of the Dragon is continuity. People who worked on the old show working on the new show. And I'm not talking about Benioff and Weiss. Like, in this case with, with Saul, there's so many people. And I we talked about this a bunch. There's people who were production assistants on Breaking Bad who are now writing episodes of Better Call Saul. Who mm -hmm. are now directing episodes. Who are integral to the creative process and that's just cool to see i am so curious to see what's next for them because i don't think it can be in the same universe yeah. but i think it can be the same people and if those people come back i think it's it's something to behold so better call Saul ended up being as they were the entire time one of the most patient shows, mm -hmm. one of the most confident shows. They knew exactly where they were going. Well, not at first, but eventually they knew exactly <laughs> where they were going. And they took their time getting there. And I don't have any anything that I feel was missed or anything that I wish I had. Instead, I feel like everything that they chose to show us was important and relevant and interesting. And it was just a great ride, man. And I'm going to miss it. I have to say this was this has been one of the few times in television where I feel just satisfied with how everything went from beginning to end. You know, Breaking Bad was very similar. I I I really liked the finale and and I and I felt like they knew what they were doing in terms of it being a thrill ride the entire time. I think you mentioned the patience of this show and how they like to show you instead of tell you. And they've done that this entire time. The slow burn, the slow cooker, as I always say, is been something about this show that I have loved because it's about taking the time to get to know characters. The It's just funny to think about the fact that they were not going to use Kim at all after season one that, or even like a couple of episodes after. But I mean, they weren't, the initial they weren't planning on using Jesse. So this is... Yeah. This is kind of what they do. And I think that, that that shows that they have a flexibility to not be constrained to certain ideas that they had. And I think that comes from the product of probably a really collaborative environment where you're taking stock from a lot of people. And I think that that's very clear because Better Call Saul, while... Gilligan co-created it and it's obviously based on Breaking Bad it really was Peter Gould's show Peter Gould was way more influential in this 
Gilligan kind of took a step back. And then, you know, other people like Thomas Schnoz, like they had people who stepped up. And I think that everyone that worked on this show cared about it as much as we did, which are mo- way more, which is yeah. just lovely to have. Yeah, it. I can't think of, especially lately in the past few years, maybe Succession is kind of like up there for me where appointment television where it's like, okay, I got to watch this when it comes on. Like immediately, I know there's certain things like from a pop culture standpoint, like Insecure and there are, I mean, maybe like Game of Thrones is like another one, which is like, but that's a few years past now. But I feel like this, especially as we got into this final season, where it just felt like every episode was, you, you had to watch it immediately. And it lived up to the billing each time, which even the even the episode, which I think a few people I know, I was listening to some of Mystery Crate and Roy was talking about how he compared the the Gene episode to The Fly, where they're doing the heist and stuff like that in the department store. I don't know. I thought that was good. I think it showed it showed Jimmy's he just couldn't help himself. He just had to get back in. And it, even with the amount of time that he spent away from doing the lawyer stuff and the shady stuff, it's just he had to get back in. And how these these people around him had influenced his emotions to the point like he has the phone call with Kim that goes bad in the in, in the episode, the I think it was a Breaking Bad episode. And that like forces him down that like that slipping Jimmy road again. And it's basically the entire series. The entire series has shown you that this is who this person is. And I just love like little stuff like the Walter line. That 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 was just where I was about to go to, where he said, Oh, so this is who you are. <laughs> this is who you've always, always been. been. Yeah. yeah. So like I, I it's just very impressive. I, I find myself incredibly impressed. But before we get before right before we get to the finale, I do want to hit some of the you know favorite moments of the series because this show I felt in the first two two seasons plus was very good, but it was like it was moving at a very slow pace, but I was enjoying what I was watching. I felt like to me where it changed was when the Jimmy Chuck thing kind of got to reach the precipice. And the chicanery episode is one that I always go back to. And Chuck's just berating of Jimmy in front of the courtroom is where I feel like this show went from good to great. And since then, they introduce all of the other Breaking Bad elements, the Lalo element, all of those things. And it just I feel like this show just flew after that. Not to say that the stuff before was bad. I thought it was really good. But it's just like it changed. Something about it changed. So are there any particular moments for you? Yeah, I I, I think that that's right on. I think that's the one where it, where it kicked up a notch. And then obviously that drives Chuck to the end of the line. The beginning, the first couple seasons, I think are fairly tonally similar to the way that it ended in the last four ish episodes mm-hmm. if you take out the breaking bad side behind the scenes stories and just do the gene and just do the kim like 
what this show has done since the jump is elevate mundanity and take things that could be <laughs> really boring and making them interesting. I'm thinking of the sequence where Jimmy makes a shit ton of copies and falsifies documents at that Kinko's FedEx office, whatever that place was. I'm thinking about <laughs> my favorite scene ever, Kim in the stairwell with the post-it notes. Doc review, Sandpiper, Jimmy playing bingo with the old people. Flashbacks to Mel Rodriguez, the scene where Jimmy carries Chuck in and they're both shit-faced. Like, it's yeah. just little moments, and that's what builds character. Like, that's the patience that we've talked about. I get how you could say, if you, especially if you're coming right out of Breaking Bad, season one and two of Better, Better Call Saul are boring, but the reason that we're so invested at this point is because of season one and two and because of all those mm -hmm. little moments, before shit got crazy, before... Saul gets dragged into this mess when Mike is just a freaking parking attendant. <laughs> like that's the stuff that laid the groundwork and it just isn't like really any other show because this whole this whole final season Kim and Jimmy have been the main like main main yeah. characters the first half is all about them setting up this howard heist yeah there's some little gus and mike and lalo sprinkled in there but i think tony dalton is literally in 45 minutes of screen time this season pretty much yeah it's an insanely efficient 45 mm -hmm. minutes he had about 300 points but You've got this guy that is Darth Vader in cowboy boots, and you're not using him that much because the story's not about him. He's just a piece in the puzzle. Yeah. It's about these two, and that's where we ended it, and that's that's what opened and closed this show. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the finale a little bit. Saul's gone. and Hold on. <laughs> and Saul finally gets caught. Shout out to Carol Burnett uh, doing the previous episode and getting him dead to right on a on a Google. I just search. feel dumb, man. I just feel dumb. You see Carol Burnett show up and you're like, "Oh, that's nice." But why is it Carol Burnett? Carol Carol Burnett because she's gonna bust his ass. That's why. Yeah, and so Brian David's uh, he writes for the Hollywood Reporter. He is this guy's good. I would, the probably like the foremost. And when you talk about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, just like finding imagery and like all of the stuff from previous episodes of Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul and even stuff from Saul's earlier seasons to now. And I think before when Jimmy is in the dumpster or Gene is in the dumpster. Now they're all the same guy anyway. They... You you have the photo of at the beginning of this season where they're dumping the cardboard uh, cutout in a dumpster when they're taking apart the mansion. And now you have Gene caught by the cops in a dumpster. It's just like chef's kiss. Like all that, that, that imagery stuff is just tremendous. 
And it was cool to get the get a, a Marie sighting. That was that was a nice, pleasant, uh, pleasant surprise. And we haven't seen her in so long, and we didn't really get too much. I mean, we got a little bit of a reaction of the Hank stuff in Breaking Bad, but you know, not seeing her for this amount of time closes that loop too. So I think the after stuff, which is something that we discussed when I had you on a few months ago regarding this, was that well, what are they going to do with the with the final six episodes of this show? Is it going to be like, are they going to drag this Lalo thing out? And like, no, they took care of it in the first episode, and they're like, okay. We're now going to tell this after portion of Gene's story. So I think the fact that they were able to spend time a couple of episodes prior and then you get the Kim stuff, it makes the it gives the context and makes the finale feel that much more concrete. And yeah, so we get Jimmy uh, one one more time in uh, getting a 86 year sentence down to seven years, which is just a. A maestro stroke. What did you think of that scene? He had him over a barrel and showed him the 50 states. I mean, it was... It's like he's been preparing for it for a long, long time. It was very confident. I just have to consider the complete look of despair on the face of the federal prosecutor and just... They were so they were gassed. Like he tired them out. He wore them out. Also, shout out to Bill Oakley for just kind of yeah. riding the coattails on that one. <laughs> I don't resent his decision to get on board. He probably would get some notoriety out of that situation. But yeah, man, I think that that after all, after everything we've been through with Bob Odenkirk's character is his proof that he's actually a good lawyer. Yeah, Chuck was wrong. He Chuck proved it wrong. to Chuck on that one. That was that was all to shove it in Chuck's face. And it is definitely an accomplishment because there were several times throughout the course of the show where he was not a good lawyer or where he was not the best lawyer or not even the world's second best lawyer. Like Kim got him that mug. Mm-hmm. He was looking for loopholes. He was tricky and he was a dirt bag. And in this case, it seems like he actually had the law figured out. Yeah. It, no tricks. It, no, no, none needed. And, but this all changes when Kim gets mentioned as far as this is concerned because in the previous episode, uh, I think it's called Waterworks, mm-hmm. where she you know confesses to Howard's Howard's ex-wife about the about the whole Howard situation with Lalo and him dying and everything that happened and their them being complicit in it. So Jimmy finds out about that and I know it was done a little bit just for like dramatic pause in the sense that, oh, is he going to actually make this worse for Kim? But at that point, I think his frustration that we saw in the phone call in Breaking Bad and then in Waterworks where we see the divorce paper scene and he basically like ignores her and then and then kind of like verbally berates her a little bit towards the end of that. At the when it's all said and done, 
behind all of the sleaze and everything behind him, this guy loves Kim. He just does. He loves Kim. And I think to see that character break back to good, in a sense, like the... I won't go that far, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, just I, I, the, the moral the moral gray area, uh, I would say, to getting back to a point where a redeemable, at least being redeemable in Kim's eyes is what matters to him. Mm-hmm. Because I think at that point, he wasn't. And that was a bitterness that he carried, and it led him to doing all of the stuff that he did that led him to the current situation that he was in. So the fact that Kim was involved and he had a chance to do that, and it's just... It's just funny to me that love will make you take a seven-year prison sentence right back to an 86-year prison sentence. How about that? That's one way to put it, yeah. <laughs> love is worth 80 years in jail. Uh, can, we talk a little, can we talk a little bit about Kim's story? Yeah, sure. Because... So, yeah, let's do so. La- previously, we've talked. We've talked like last couple times we talked. I think it's been like, well, Kim's kind of Kim's Breaking Bad. Kim's mm-hmm. better at this than Jimmy. Kim's kind of pushing the agenda on this whole Howard thing. Kim, what's going on? She's karmically balancing everything out by doing all of this pro bono work, but she's also knowingly and willingly participating in evil deeds so did she just kind of snap out of a trance at some point with the howard death and then she reconsidered what she'd done was she faking it the whole time how do you explain her behavior in essentially every episode from the end of last season to her breaking up with Jimmy. It's fascinating because I think I think all of it was fine for her until somebody died. And I think when it's somebody dying and then she still attempts to carry it because of everything like involving Jimmy and the stuff with the drug cartel and stuff like that. She attempts to carry it that way and try and go on with her life like it's fine. But I think it's after she pulls what she pulls with Howard's ex-wife that I think her moral compass came back. That's where it started, where she just couldn't do it anymore. And I I read that kind of differently. I read the the encounter at the memorial or the wake mm -hmm. as one... Like, the last thing she had to do before she could get out. I think she'd Mm. already made up her mind before that point. Interesting. Oh, well, I guess you could say that... Yeah, because throughout that episode, Jimmy is trying to convince her, like, oh, yeah, we're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. There's a lot of that going around. So I can see see why you would say that. That's interesting now, because now you're making me think about it as far as, like, just her her overall demeanor towards that. And it I mean, makes I me, think, yeah, I think she tried to hold it together. Yeah. She definitely tried. And 
the the Howard thing was all the like her urgency with the Howard thing was always the most curious. But I I think it kind of became this bargaining process where she kept thinking that if she did one more thing, then they wouldn't have to do anything else anymore. Whereas mm-hmm. Jimmy was never operating like that. He was, as we've explored in his character in this last run here, he's obsessed with getting more money. So yeah. one job is just the bridge to the next job, which is the bridge to more money, which is how we get the Saul Goodman character in Breaking Bad. But Kim, he has to tell her when he comes back from the desert, right? That's when he essentially brings her into the fold. Yeah. And at that point, she's worried about his life. And then the whole Lalo, the Lalo thing happens. So she knows who Lalo is. And, and then it's like, okay, well, we're worried about Lalo. She finds out Lalo's still alive. The Howard thing, I think she treated like, we're going to bust Howard's ass because I have a little bit of a personal grudge. We're going to get that Sandpiper money, which is rightfully yours anyways. They're just being dicks about it. And then we're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, in- it's interesting. It, I, it doesn't totally justify it to me because she's, she, you know, Jimmy essentially says the dude has the cast. Let's bail. And she turns the car around. She she throws away the pro bono. Yeah, Grant. She makes that choice. And then, like you're saying, the death is what took it too far. So then, that's what kind of snaps her back to reality, I guess. Yeah, and I think even. I mean, once you have the death and then her having to having Lalo basically tell her, hey, you're going to kill this guy. That's that's something else to add on top of that. So you can make the argument that those two things after that, it didn't matter what was going to happen. And to your point about her talking to Howard's ex-wife, that at that point she made she might have made her decision. But, yeah, her character, like, it was so interesting. Like, the turn that they did at the end of season five with her, that's what was very surprising because it made me wonder, like, and I made us wonder when we were talking about it was, okay, so where, how is this ending? Is this ending with her getting involved with the cartel to a degree that she's almost like a fixer with them, perhaps, after the conversation she has with Lalo towards the end of season five? But instead, what ended up happening was, they completely subverted that whole story because I just remember yeah. at the time we were talking about, shoot, is Kim going to die? And then it's just like, no, it doesn't happen like that. It's it's Kim leaves Jimmy, which in a lot of ways was a lot more heartbreaking and more compelling than her getting killed. Honestly, it was. It just ended up being that way because this is what you're talking about earlier about the first two seasons establishing what that relationship is the almost breaking point of the relationship in the fifth season to them getting married and everything happening after that. So looking at her character overall, it's just, it, I mean, you could talk about her decisions and stuff like that and, and kind of quibble with those things, but what an amazing character. I think what you called her, I think when you called her a fixer, I think that's kind of it. I think she's trying to fix it. Yeah. I think she's trying to fix Jimmy's mess. 
permanently because that dude constantly makes messes. So, yeah, I, I think that she loved him tremendously and tried to tried to help him and then eventually re- like I think part of it as well mm-hmm. is not really seeing him have any remorse which which is more of a theme in like the last episode but I in the wake of Howard's death yeah she's obviously very affected and he is less affected and I think that's part of the the separation right there because She's starting to see that this guy doesn't have any fucking soul. Like he's well, she's seen it before with the Chuck stuff because he tried uh, to just bury. He just tried to bury that, and then the stuff with the bar at the end of season four. Most people thought that when he did the it's all it's all good, man. That that was going to be the change, but no, it had to continue. And I think it's, I think it is a, another testament to people reaching their breaking points is not as simple as one season here or an episode there. It's, mm-hmm. it's all, it's about the amount of time elapsed and basically the entire series of Jimmy and Kim, this, this relationship and what it has been is Kim being kind of cool with doing this Jimmy stuff to a point, but then pulling back but then she really gets involved to a point where, oh shit, I can't do this anymore, and that's how, it, that's how it changes. So, thinking about her character, and again, uh, Ray Seahorn, my goodness gracious, just give her all the awards, all the awards. The Waterworks episode is an all timer. Uh, it's like I wanted to cry when she cried. Oh, the double entendre of that title as well, because she cries. But also, yeah. she worked for a sprinkler company. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I love Never Kim. Forget, I love Kim. <laughs> She's the best. I, Kim. I can't believe that she essentially didn't exist before the show. It's hard to remember a time without her. Bring her all of the parts, all of the awards, all of the money. Give her everything. Let her cook, please. Yes, let Kim Wexler and let Ray Seahorn live on forever. And if anybody can go from Franklin and Bash to the best (laughs) character on television, (laughs) there's hope for all of us, okay? Hey, this is Super Producer Jay Christie cutting in just to let you know that this is the end of the free preview portion of this episode. If you want to hear the rest of it, come check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash mcuniversitypod. They go on for almost another hour talking about this. Uh, anyone who signs up at the $3 level will be able to hear the rest of it. Uh, usually, you have to wait two weeks in order to hear new Patreon episodes if you're at the $3. But since we're in the preview, anyone who signs up at all can hear it. So that's patreon.com slash mcuniversitypod. We've got a great Discord, a bunch of other bonus episodes, some really cool perks. So just check us out. You know, you give us $3 for one month. You hate it. That's fine. That's $3 you could have spent on a freaking, you know, a couple candy bars. So just check us out, and uh, if not, uh, just listen to the outro music, which is going to be kind of awkward coming into this, this, you know, pretty benign explanation. But y'all have a great week, and we will talk to you next time.